Elizabeth Lucchese and the Liz Luke team are an all-ladies leading real estate team in Alexandria, Arlington, Fairfax, and beyond. Liz Luke team and successful stress-free real estate experiences go hand in hand. This group of gals are tough negotiators known to go to bat for their clients' best interests and personally are invested in each and every client. Liz Luke has supported thousands of Alexandria, Arlington, and Fairfax home buyers and sellers since 2004. Will you be the next happy home buyer or seller in 2020? Call, text, or click Liz Luke today at lizluke.com or 703-868-5676 or info at lizluke.com. Hello, and welcome to Speakeasy. My name is Cody Mellicline, reporter at the Alexandria Times, and I'm joined today by president of Alexandria Colonial Tours, Wellington Watts. Uh, you'll know Alexandria Colonial Tours from their historical tours, their Alexandria history tours, and most notably for this conversation, their their ghost tours. How's it going, Wellington? Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's going very well. We're having a very good October. Yeah, um, we figured we would uh, kind of catch up with you because this podcast will be coming out basically the the week of Halloween, um, and who better to kind of ring in the, the spooky season than yourself. Um, but I'm kind of curious, before we delve into some of kind of the city's most uh, most notable ghost stories, we'll kind of walk through kind of how you arrived at where you are, um, kind of giving these tours in the first place and leading this tour company. What, what originally brought you to Alexandria? Well, 26 years ago, I was living in South Jersey near Philadelphia, and I had gone to graduate school at Rowan University, and my professors had started a business communication newsletter called Communication Briefings. And I got my master's degree there from Rowan in public relations, and I made the right phone call at the right time. And within a few weeks after I had called, the professors had sold their business to a publishing company in Old Town, Alexandria. And after they gave my resume to the new president and a couple of interviews, I was down here shopping for apartments. So that brought me to the Old Town area. And with a bachelor's degree in history, once I drove through Old Town and found where the office was going to be located, I thought, this is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I thought, praise the Lord, I am in my wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, where I want to be. And in time, I started giving these tours part-time. I joined Toastmasters about 25 years ago, and I was part of the Toastmasters Club in Vienna, Virginia. And that taught me a lot about using speaking skills. And I got a lot of experience and a lot of support from that club and wanted to combine my love of history with using my speaking skills. So... Eventually, I emailed the owners of the Ghost Tour company after I had been working with them for about two years. It was Ed and Stella Michaels at the time. And to make a long story short, I guess sending the right email at the right time is the trick to career advancement because they offered me the opportunity to own their business. Uh, They were well into their 60s and they were going to retire. And so I eventually became the next owner. And I've done this full-time or worked this business full-time since the fall of 2003. Yeah, for I guess for those who don't know, what what I guess what is in your tour company's repertoire of tours? And I, I guess what kind of distinguishes you guys from other, from other tour companies, either in the city or kind of in the area? We offer three tours 
naturally our biggest and most popular is our ghost and graveyard tour. Sure. But we also offer a regular history tour, and that is offered to private groups. And we offer an African-American history tour because the two overlap so well and so often that it's really a benefit to take both. And we offer the African-American history tour to groups as well, groups of 20 or more. And we also offer our Ghost and Graveyard Tour. And we offer that to the general public from about mid-March through Thanksgiving weekend. We then take a few weeks off and then we come back at Christmas time between Christmas and New Year's. And we offer our private tours year-round. And our ghost tour can be taken as a private tour as well if you have a group of 20 or more or if you have a group of students, either a youth group or a middle school group coming to D.C. on their eighth grade trip, uh, let us know and we will be glad to haunt them after dinner. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a performative aspect to what you guys do and kind, kind of and how you tell your stories. Was that something that you had to, like when you first started kind of giving tours, was that something that was difficult to you for you? Did it take you a little time to kind of get used to, I guess, telling these stories in the way that you guys do tell them, which which involves wearing a costume, which involves kind of playing up kind of the historical aspect? Well, to tell you the truth, it's a lot of fun for the tour guides and I to get dressed up. We, like, we sure. love using the costumes because uh, you can be something other than what you are usually. Uh, if you're a school teacher or you're an accountant, and you're working nine to five and you're in a suit and tie all day, then you can come home and get dressed into a colonial costume, and it just it kind of takes you to a, a different place. Um, I will admit, though, when I first started giving these tours, I didn't realize the challenges of getting into the costume. It is a lot of buttons. And when I first started uh, with my costume, it took me, I'd say, a good five to ten minutes to get into costume, uh, make sure all the strings were tied, and then button everything and it was not like batman sliding down the bat pole and coming out of the bat cave fully clothed this took a few minutes (laughs) yeah do people give you any weird looks when you're walking around or are people pretty used to to your presence in the in old town they are extremely used to me and my tour guides walking around in costume in fact uh if we get strange looks it's not really anything that's makes us feel uncomfortable if we don't get strange looks it makes us feel uncomfortable (laughs) (laughs) yeah it kind of makes us wonder how many colonial people do you see on a daily basis (laughs) (laughs) has the repertoire of tours you guys give changed at all over time or has it been kind of that same three staples of tours have you guys tried to add any new tours in And, and how does that usually go with people we've tried to be a little creative and add like a holiday walking tour, a Christmas walking tour. We've tried scavenger hunts and we've tried uh, pirate tours for the little kids. We have found that those three staples are a good foundation. And if it's not broke, don't fix it. We do offer a scavenger hunt for kids, which the Old Town Shop sells on Union Street at their location. And that's for kids who are a little too young to take the ghost tour. And it'll take them to a few of the historic sites. And it's planned to take them to historic places so that they can then go into the museums and learn even more. But that's as far as we really migrate from the original 
standard. Uh, the foundation is pretty solid, and mm-hmm. we don't want to. I have found out the hard way: don't deviate too much from what works. To use a football analogy, Paul Bear Bryant, when he coached the University of Alabama, would always say, "Dance with who brung you." Mm-hmm. In other words, go with your strength. Go with what you know what works. So. Getting into costume, lighting a lantern, and giving a walking tour is what works. So we want to make sure we, we stick with that. Yeah, yeah. I guess one thing that interests me about what you guys do and, and giving kind of historical tours in general is that history, history in a way is a living document and that we constantly learn new things about the history that we all think we know. Um, we'll kind of re, and it'll kind of re... re orient the ways we think about history the facts might stay the same but we might learn new facts or we might learn that old facts perhaps are outdated um how have you guys changed the telling of the stories themselves as as kind of new information comes to light is that something that you guys do adapt to as as kind of our knowledge of history changes certainly in history you're dealing with human beings and human beings are a little more complex than just the simple uh, black and white. Sure. We're multi-talented, multi-faceted people. And by that, I mean the general human being and any history, any story of a person is going to have different facets and different aspects about it. Uh, it's not cut and dry. Um, it's not um, cookie cutter and it's not dates and places. There are a lot of motivations. There are a lot of emotions, feelings, desires, drives, goals, all that mixes into a story and the history of the community and the history of the country. So there are multiple aspects. And there's also the aspect of historiography, which is something I learned as a history major. You have to study the writing of history and how it's written and from what perspective. Mm -hmm. Because if I tell you that James Jackson, who owned a hotel, it's also where he lived on the corner of Pitt and King Street, was a staunch secessionist. That's one aspect, and that is a fact. But he was also the first casualty of the Union War for the Confederacy, and in the small moment of combat, he inflicted casualty on the Union side, Colonel Ellsworth. So there are two aspects that make those men famous. Mm -hmm. When I was a child growing up, the history books would talk about Colonel Ellsworth and his heroics and how tragic it was that he lost his life to a horrible secessionist. No mention of James Jackson. But when I moved down here 26 years ago, I saw the plaque on the wall of the hotel where his hotel used to stand, and it was in memory of James Jackson, who defended his home and property against a foreign invader. Now, the same event Mm -hmm. happened with both men. They shot and killed each other. But you hear this perspective from two different sides. And one of the good things about tourism is that you can share that. You can say, here is what happened. Here is the perspective from different sides. And you can combine a number of stories into one. Because with the death of, of James Jackson... It sent alarm bells through Alexandria at the time, but there were greater alarm bells sent throughout the North at the death of Colonel Ellsworth. He was a close friend of Abraham Lincoln, worked on Lincoln's campaign to get elected as president. Lincoln knew him well, almost as another son. 
So there's that whole aspect which helped galvanize Union support throughout the North to join the Union Army and quell secession in the South. So two gunshots have a wide field, uh, almost like an explosion. There is an area or an explosive area where the energy will simply reverberate and spread out. Mm-hmm. So those two gunshots were significant in 1861. Yeah, there are different perspectives. There's also the African-American perspective of those of two course. shots fired on that street corner here in Old Town. Those were also signal warnings that there's a change about to come. And then you have the whole aspect of, well, what does the change bring? Is it going to bring freedom and equality? Is mm-hmm. it going to bring everything that we've been hoping for and working for in the slave and African-American communities? Alexandria had a very large free African-American community at the time, uh, or before that, sadly, in 1848, uh, because of a very daring escape attempt by about 70 slaves, uh, the city decided to uh, remove itself and remand itself back to the state of Virginia. So many African-Americans lost the rights that they had enjoyed so much as free citizens. Alexandria was part of the District of Columbia for almost 50 years. So many people who now live in Washington, D.C., who are African-American, their ancestors originally lived here in Alexandria in the Northern Virginia area, and they migrated over to D.C. so they could still enjoy the rights and privileges that they enjoyed when they were living in D.C. and also living in Alexandria. So it was a a remarkable time in terms of emotions and feelings and insecurity as to what the future would hold. And you have all those aspects coming together in these various stories that we are discussing. Not just James Jackson, but then you also have the Stringfellow stories. You have the buildings that were used as hospitals, which were featured Mm -hmm. on the PBS show Mercy Street a few years ago. Uh, there is such a wide range that it would take hours to tell the whole story. And even then, you would only be glossing the surface or glancing the surface. Uh, If we were to take the full amount of history for African-American history here in Alexandria, it would be a three and a half hour tour minimum. Uh, When the tour we produced was originally researched, it was a full three and a half hours and we had to cut it down. But that's the volume of history that you have in this little community. That That is an element of history that I did want to touch on, um, especially when it comes to this question that I kind of posed earlier in terms of how your telling of that story changes or, or does not change. Because as, obviously, as of late, the, the emphasis and the way that that story is told has, has kind of come sharply into focus um, with everything kind of going on in the country right now around Black Lives Matter and, and the questions being rightly posed about um, the injustice perpetrated against that community. In in your telling of the city's African-American history, um, has how has that changed, if at all, over the course of the, the time your tour company has told that story? Have you ever had to, I guess, or have you have you ever sort of posed the question to yourself that I think a lot of people are posing themselves now, like, is it our place to tell this story? What, how much does that kind of enter into your thinking when you're, when you're doing these tours? My approach and the approach of my tour guides is it's the truth and just tell the truth. 
Okay. Tell the truth, share the history, tell the story. We all have a right to it and we all have to take ownership of it, whether we like it or not, even if it doesn't make us feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a powerful story, the history of African-Americans in this area, particularly Old Town. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. You have to embrace it and you have to also accept it. It's a very painful history in many ways. And it does not do any good to try to ignore it, sweep it under the rug, or segregate it and say, well, only a certain amount of people can talk about it. It has to be discussed by everyone. I yeah. mean, we have to do this as a community. Uh, we have to do this as a nation. And if we don't, people are still going to write about it as history 100 to 200 years from now. So we may as well learn the truth and embrace it, learn from it, and then take the next step and do something that can make things better for everyone. You're kind of shifting, shifting gears a little bit here. You mentioned at the top of the show that you guys are having kind of a turnaround in business this month um, with kind of more tours resuming. I'm curious, what has it been like uh, running a tour company in the middle of a global pandemic? Um, and how have you guys kind of adapted your operations to, to meet the kind of shifting needs of what people are doing right now? Well, to meet people's needs and expectations for the COVID problem, we follow the Alexandria guidelines. Everyone has to wear a mask. Sure. And you know, we can take, according to the health department, up to 50 people per tour guide, but that's unrealistic even in good times or normal situations. We only we try to average right now between 15 to 25. Now, the other evening I made a mistake and I counted too many people and I sent out about 30 on a ghost tour with one of my tour guys. Fortunately, he's six foot four and he could be heard very easily. <laughs> but we try to have everyone um, wear a mask, uh, show up a little early before tour time so we can move people. We try to spread people out as best we can uh, for the locations where we start and abide by what the city guidelines are as much as possible. It has been rough, I will tell you this. 80% uh, of our company revenue comes from the student groups that come in the spring and in the fall on their eighth grade trips. And after March 15th, that fell off a cliff and it has been a nail-biting year. Mm -hmm. It has not been good. I, I can't I can't change that history. Uh, that, that history is going to stay the same. We can recover from that if things get back to normal fairly soon. We hmm. need to see a very normal 2021. Otherwise, I fear there would be a number of tour companies who will probably not survive if this lingers for another eight months. We have to be able to show people Washington, D.C., not my company, but the other companies that bring the kids in. They have to show them Washington, D.C. The hotels have to be open. They have to ride on motor coaches. They have to take the metro. Uh, things need to get back to normal. They have to eat at the restaurants. They have to shop at the shops, buy their souvenirs, take their pictures, and do all that like normal to keep the local economy moving. You can't replace hundreds of thousands of customers in an eye blink. Mm -hmm. And you can't 
change your business model to accommodate them because if they're not traveling, you're just not going to get them. Have you guys been doing virtual tours at all? Yes, we have. We have offered our virtual tours. We do our ghost tour on Zoom and we have one coming up on October 30th and another one coming up on Halloween night. Those have not surprisingly sold very well. We offered them during the summer and eventually I just had to take them off the website uh, because we weren't uh, seeing a, a lot of a lot of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, not much I could do about that. It really surprised me because I figured we would be able to accommodate people who were worried about coming out in public during the COVID crisis. But I think people were just waiting until things were a little safer to go outdoors. And now our public tour for our ghost tour is pretty much back to normal. Every day, Elizabeth Lucchese and the Lizlu team are hustling to get first-time buyers, seasoned sellers, upsizers, downsizers, all their clients, home. Lizluke and stress-free real estate settlements go hand-in-hand. Lizluke aims to build lasting relationships with every client. You're more than a transaction. You're a lifetime Lizluker when you work with this top-producing team. What does your 2020 real estate future look like? Call, text, or click Lizluke now to begin mapping out your plan. 703-868-5676 or info at lizluke.com. Again, that's 703-868-5676 or info at lizluke.com. And follow Lizluke on social media at the Lizluke team. Uh, I'd like to, to kind of shift the conversation to, um, I guess, the reason we started this conversation, which is ghosts. Um you know, I've talked. I talked with uh, our last guest, Michael Pope, about this a little bit um, because he has written extensively about kind of local history as well. But uh, in a way, any history story, any story about history, is a ghost story uh, in some way or another. But you guys direct deal directly with ghost stories, um, which are an in, kind of an interesting inroad into learning about the history of a of a city. Obviously, these tours are a massive hit. But why do you why do you think they are like what is the appeal of ghost stories in 2020 um given like people like yourself and the vast majority of people don't necessarily believe in ghosts um what is the appeal of these stories in the first place in in the 21st century i think the appeal is you have to learn about the community when you walk through old town you see these beautiful homes beautiful buildings shops and restaurants you see how beautiful the city is and you just got to hear about the people who used to live here. Who built these homes? Who you know, made these mansions? Who built these churches? Who worshipped here? What was the environment like? What was the situation like? What were their goals and dreams? What were they after? What did they want to achieve? Uh, what were you know, their goals for their happiness? What was the culture like? You just got to learn about it when you walk through Old Town. That was what inspired me to give this tour, but also inspired me to take the tour as a customer when I first moved down here. I walked through Old Town, I thought to myself, I have got to learn about these people. I've got to learn about the past. And I think that still inspires people to this day. What is your research like for this kind of tour? Where do you find ghost stories in Alexandria? Well, about 40-some years ago, Ed and Stella Michaels, the previous owners of the Ghost and Graveyard Tour, they did all the research, went to libraries, old newspapers. I mean, they really dug deep to find out the history of the town, 
but also if there was rumored to be a ghost lurking, they would try to figure out who that ghost was, how the ghost died, what made the person become a ghost, how did how did the feelings of anguish and sorrow or anger impact what would become a future haunting. If mm-hmm. you know your average ghost story, it never ends well. Sure. <laughs> you don't become a ghost because you died happily in your sleep. You become a ghost because something bad happened to you more often than not. So Ed and Stella you went to the old newspapers and the libraries in Old Town and they found the historical background of what they think could have happened and what is going on with said ghost in said building or on a certain street. Now in time, over the last couple decades, naturally you hear things from local residents and you hear things also from tour guides. And so what starts out as one story of 35, 40 years ago ends up becoming even stronger or more developed over the decades. Uh, For example, one of the stories I'm going to tell you about the female stranger, there's an additional point to it where at Gatsby's Tavern, the young lady is said to be haunting and it was thought she only haunted the museum. But several years ago, someone from Visit Alexandria talked to me at a dinner and said, did you know the female stranger made an appearance? I said, no, what do you mean? She says, yes, one of the waitresses saw her in the kitchen and the ghost spoke to her and then vanished. And then the woman told me, so did the waitress. She ran out of the restaurant screaming. And the customers never got their meals from her. (laughs) She quit on site. So those are little things that pop up. And every now and then I have a tour guide or two that has a strange thing happen, which we can't quite explain. What kind of things? Well, the most famous is my tour guide, Ken, and my tour guide, Kelsey. This happened about eight or nine years ago, and it was the Saturday before Halloween, which is the busiest of the year. Sure. And I'm sending people out on the public tour. I send Ken out about 7.15, and about 10 minutes later, I send out Kelsey. And they go on the same tour route on the south route. And Ken is standing in front of the Carlisle house. And he puts his lantern down, gathers a group around him, and he's telling his story about the Carlisle house, sharing some history and so forth. And just before he's finished, he feels a tap on his right shoulder. He doesn't think anything of this. He turns around and looks, and there's nobody there. So he finishes his story, picks up his lantern, leads the group off the grounds. Kelsey sees him leave. She goes to that spot, puts down her lantern, pulls the group around her, begins to tell her story. Just before she's finished, tap on the right shoulder, turns around, no one's there. She doesn't think too much of this, so she finishes her story, picks up the lantern, walks the group off the grounds. The two of them come back for the 9 o'clock tour, and there's a little bit of a lull as far as selling tickets you know, to the customers, and I'm standing... Mm-hmm with Ken to my left, and Kelsey just happened to be standing to my right. At this point, Ken leans over to me and says, by the way, I had a very strange incident occur at the Carlisle house tonight. 
Just before I was finished my story, I felt a tap on my right shoulder, and when I turned around, no one was there. Well, Kelsey overheard that and turned white. <laughs> she now lives in Hawaii. Due to that or due to other circumstances? <laughs> no, she moved there for her job, but it sure makes a good ending. <laughs> it, uh, it definitely does. I'd like to get into a, a few of these stories that you guys tell. Um, you already alluded to one, kind of, and I think it's probably the most notable one, which is the, the story of the mysterious female stranger. But I know you have another one to share with us as, as well. Um, which one do you want to start with? Uh, let's see. We can start with the female stranger. That's on the north route, and it takes place at Gatsby's Tavern. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Well, Gatsby's was one of the most successful taverns in the United States. It was, in fact, the Ritz-Carlton of early America. Anybody who was traveling north and south would make it a point to stay at Gatsby's Tavern. Mr. Gatsby had the best food, best wine, and best accommodations of anyone in early America. In 1816, a very strange incident occurred there, however. In September of 1816, there was a young couple that arrived by boat from the Caribbean. The wife had taken very ill on the voyage, and so the husband hired a carriage and had her brought up to Gatsby's Tavern. They took a room, room number eight, up on the second floor, and it's right above the restaurant. Doctors and nurses were called to this woman's bedside. She was very sick, and they gave her around-the-clock care for about three weeks, but it looked like she was going to perish. So the doctors took the husband into the hallway, and they prepared him for the worst. They had a conversation with him. He then goes inside the bedroom and talks to his wife. In a few minutes, they call the doctors and nurses and Mr. Gadsby to the bedside. And while all those people are gathered around her deathbed, they are asked to swear an oath. And in that oath, they promise they will never reveal the identity of either the man or the woman for the rest of their lives. She lingers a few more days and then finally dies. She was buried in St. Paul's Cemetery, about a mile south of Old Town. Her tombstone is a flat tabletop tombstone, and it bears this inscription, to the memory of the female stranger, whose mortal sufferings terminated on the 14th of October, 1816, aged 23 years and 8 months. This stone was placed here by her disconsolate husband, in whose arms she sighed out her last breath, and who under God did his utmost, even to soothe the cold, dead ear of death. The husband is devastated, as you can well imagine, and he goes all throughout Old Town trying to drink away his sorrows. He also runs up a large number of gambling debts. Then in the middle of the night, he boards a boat off of Prince Street, and he sails out of town. He does not pay for a thing. He did not pay for the room at Gatsby's Tavern, did not pay for the doctors and nurses, and did not pay for any of his drinking or gambling debts. Well, people are furious with him, and they come to Gatsby's Tavern to find his name in the registry. But Mr. Gatsby swore the oath. He promised never to reveal the identity of either one of them, so he scribbled the name out of the registry. The people then go to the doctors and nurses, and they demand to know this man's identity. They're going to put him under arrest. Doctors and nurses kept their honor, and because they swore the oath, they refused to say who the man was. So many years later, when these people died, the secret died with them. And to this day, no one knows who that woman was. But even though the husband left town, it is said she is still here, that she is still haunting Gatsby's tavern where she died. 
Waiters and waitresses underneath her bedroom in the restaurant will often hear footsteps walking up and down the hallway going in and out of their in and out of that bedroom where she died right above their heads. They think that's a little strange because no one should be up in the museum at this time of night when they hear the footsteps walking. And as I mentioned to you earlier, a few years ago, one of the waitresses at Gatsby saw the female stranger face to face. A few years ago, one of my tour guides was at a party at Gatsby's. Everybody was at the party in the ballroom across the hall from the female stranger's bedroom, and everyone was dressed in colonial, in colonial costume, as my tour guides and I dress every evening. There was one person, however, who was dressed in early 19th century clothing, and not interacting with anyone, just watching what was going on. Her costume was out of place, so she stood out, but she was also a very attractive young lady in her early 20s. One of my tour guides, who was single, walked over to say hi to her, and when he said hello, she completely disappeared, vanished right in front of his eyes. He then sees her walking down the hallway and going into room number eight, the bedroom of the female stranger. Now this tour guide was new to my company. He had yet to learn the story of the female stranger, and little did he know he was about to become part of the legend himself. He follows her down the hall into the hallway, and she has disappeared. The bedroom's completely dark. He can't find her. It's a very small room. It would be difficult to hide a whole human being anywhere in that little room. So where did she go? He did notice, however, that there was a small lantern with a candle in it still burning. He finds the museum curator at the party, and the curator had the guest list. And he asked the curator, does that lady across the hall check in? Do you know who she is? She's the one in the early 19th century clothing. Surely she checked in earlier tonight. I followed her across the hall into that little bedroom. She seems to have vanished. Do you know who she is or where she is? Museum curator was a bit perplexed by this. And she looked at my tour guide and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I never saw anyone dressed like that the entire evening. Everybody at the party has checked in. Everybody's here. My tour guide was a bit confused and he said, I know I followed her across the hall into that little bedroom. By the way, you have a candle burning there unattended. You should either put it out or move it. If it burns down, it might catch something valuable on fire. Curator looked at him strangely again and said, no, that's impossible. I put out every candle throughout the museum at closing so we don't ever have a fire at night. I assure you that candle is not lit. My tour guide said to her, come with me and I'll prove it to you. They walk across the hallway into the little bedroom, and when they do, it is pitch black, and the candle is out, not lit. Well, the curator nudges my guide on the shoulder and says, look, I told you the candle was lit, but she did not look closely enough, because the wick on that candle was white, as if it had never been on fire. My tour guide walks over to the lamp and says, I assure you this candle was lit, he points his finger to the lamp and just barely touches the glass with his finger and had to pull the finger back. The glass was hot and it had burned my tour guide's finger. Perhaps the female stranger had been there after all, leaving a light, a beacon, for her long-lost husband to one day return to her. She's one of Alexandria's most famous ghosts. Identity still unknown to this very day. Now, her bedroom's part of the museum. You come back sometime, they'll give you a tour. 
they'll take you right into her bedroom. She might be there when you arrive. Sometimes is. <laughs> Bravo. It's almost like you do this for a living. A few times, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this this is interesting. This is a story that I hadn't heard of until I came down here, and I wrote a piece last year around Halloween um, kind of chronicling the history of this story. Um, and I, I believe I might have spoken to you for that story as well. Have I know there so there I know there are several theories about kind of who the woman could be. Mm-hmm. Is that it does is that something that you guys tell as part of the story? Is that something people are interested in? Uh, well, Mike Pope, who I believe was a guest on your show yeah. earlier, had done extensive research. It's still a mystery as to who she was. He thinks he has figured out the husband's name, but we're still not sure. Uh, this is one of those revealed by God when you see him type mysteries. Yeah. Because we're still not sure who it is. There's a lot of speculation. Uh, she just may have been a sick woman who was an invalid and did not have any connection to anyone famous. It is thought that she was Aaron Burr's daughter and wanted to keep that a secret since he had been tried for treason and had shot Alexander Hamilton in a duel. Not a popular man at the time. Um, there are other thoughts that perhaps... Uh, her husband was the son of an English lord, very wealthy, and the husband f- or the father forbade the husband to marry the wife because she came from poor means and was considered beneath the husband. So who knows? Uh, maybe they escaped and came to America to find their happiness and it all went crashing down around them. Uh, that scenario definitely has a Jane Austen feel to it, I'll admit. Yeah. Um, but we don't know. We don't know who she is. It's still a mystery to this very day. Yeah, I imagine. I mean, it's, it's, it's a story that has so many elements of what make a great either ghost story or just story in general. There's the mystery, the mystique, there's death. There's obviously the, the post kind of mortem haunting stuff. Um I know you also have another story to tell us as well, um, a story about a woman named Laura Schaefer, I believe. Yes. Yeah, Laura Schaefer is also a very famous ghost, and she haunts the building, which is today the Dolce Gelato Shop on Fairfax Street. It's right next door to the visitor center. Yeah. So you can come get some ice cream and keep your eyes open. Laura (laughs) lived back in the 1860s, and... She had been engaged for five years to the handsome and dashing Charles Tennyson. Now, Laura probably was engaged to him when he went off to fight in the Civil War because their engagement lasted for five years, and that's a pretty long time. So after the Civil War, it probably took him a little time to get back on his feet financially where he could afford to marry. But they were going to get married in early June. At that point, the night before her wedding... Laura tucks her 80-year-old grandmother into bed up on the second floor. Laura picks up a kerosene lamp and walks across the hallway into her bedroom. She closes the door behind her. She hears it latch. She turns around, and somehow the kerosene lamp that she had in her hand slips through her fingers. It crashed to the hardwood floor. The glass bulb shattered, and the kerosene splashed up the right side of her dress. Now, because the wick had been lit, the kerosene ignited. Her dress caught fire. Well, instead of dropping to the floor and rolling 
to suffocate the flames, Laura panicked. She tried to get out of the house. She tried to get help. She ran to the door and it jammed. For some reason, the door would not open. She went to the window, started pounding on her, screaming for help. The room was filling with smoke. Her dress was engulfed with flame. She goes back to the doorway with all her might, finally gets the door open, comes careening down the stairs, screaming a ball of fire. She crashed to the hardwood floor right behind the front door. Her brother-in-law just happened to be outside on the sidewalk at the time. He hears the screaming, rushes inside, sees Laura in flames, takes off his coat. He suffocates the flames and finally puts them out. Sadly, his efforts were too late. The next morning, Laura died. She died at 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. What makes that more sad is that the dress Laura was wearing that night was white. She was trying on her wedding dress. Laura would have been married the next day. She died the morning of her wedding day. Now, the story doesn't end there. It is said the ghost of Laura Schaefer still haunts that building still haunts it to this day, still reliving the horror of what happened the night before her wedding. Many years ago, that building was a real estate office, and one night in early June, one of the realtors is working late on the first floor. She hears something rustling around above her in the room that would have been Laura's bedroom 130 years earlier. She goes upstairs to check things out, and the door is closed. She turns the handle and presses against the door, and it won't open. She smells smoke. She puts her hand against the wood, and the wood is hot. Something on the other side of that doorway must be on fire. She steps back, and suddenly the door burst open. And although she saw no one, she felt this intense heat rush right past her. She then heard a young woman screaming in pain, careening down the stairs and crashing to the hardwood floor right behind the front door. She saw no one, but then heard the moans and groans and the sobs of a young woman in searing pain. Needless to say, that realtor never worked late ever again. And within weeks, that building was sold to another business. That building has changed hands three times in the last eight years. I can't imagine why. A few years ago, there was a little girl who was coming on our tour. She's about eight years old. And the store was a candy shop at the time. It was Candy's Candies. Little girl goes into the shop with her big sister, and way in the back of the store, she sees a woman in a long white dress staring at her. The little girl's very friendly and tries to get her to wave, but the woman won't wave back or even smile, just stares at the little child. The little girl comes to the cashier and says, Does that lady back there work for you? Do you know who she is? She's real pretty. She has shoulder-length brown hair, but she looked very sad. She wouldn't wave to me. Cashier had no clue who this child was describing until the child added this last point. Very innocently, the little girl says, The right side of that lady's dress is badly burned. Do you know who she is? Oh, the cashier knew now. Cashier knew exactly who it was and sent the little girl out to us tour guides. The little girl didn't know who she saw, but within a few minutes on our tour, she found out. She may have been one of the last people to see the ghost of Laura Schaefer face to face. But you all can come back sometime. Laura will be glad to see you. Get some gelato. If you buy one of our tickets, they'll get you a discount on the gelato. And Laura may serve you. Have you guys heard anything from the Dolce Gelati people about stories coming from them? 
No, but candies, candies, we certainly did. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I can tell you something that was really creepy if you want. Please. Um, Candy used to have a lantern in the hallway where Laura Schaefer crashed in flames. And the lantern was a tin lantern similar to ours. And it was surrounding the hallway light. Mm -hmm. And Candy years ago used to let us come in on Halloween and tell the, the Laura Schaefer story in that hallway. And we closed the big oak door behind us, and my tour guys reported to me later that night that right in the middle of their story, when they talk about Laura crashing to that floor, the lantern above would start to creak and sway back and forth. We didn't plan that. Mm-hmm. We didn't do anything to make that happen, but it sure scared the customers to death. I mean, that's one of the freaky things that has happened in that building. When, you're, when your tour guides tell you stories that either happened to them or to people on the tour... I know you you yourself are not someone who believes in ghosts. Is that the kind of thing that uh, pushes a little doubt into your mind? Or is it the kind of thing where you're like, oh, that's a great thing that I can add to the tour and add to the stories we tell? Actually, both. Yeah. yeah I have to admit. <laughs> <laughs> it really makes a, a story a little better when I can say, or my tour guides can say, you know, this happened to so-and-so on the tour. This happened to our customer recently or one of our guides. And especially if we can point the guide out and the customers can go talk to the tour guide. It casts a little bit of doubt. It always will. It's always going to be part of the unexplained. Mm-hmm. And perhaps one day, uh, if we all see God, we'll all be able to get the explanations. Uh, it may be explainable uh, either through acoustics, the way sound travels. But sometimes, like with my tour guide, Ken and Kelsey, it's a little hard to explain when someone is touching your shoulder. It definitely makes for a great for a great story. Um, and I thank you for, for sharing these stories with us. I know you have plenty more, um, but that's why they'll have to go take your tour to find out those. Um, before we kind of part here, Wellington, uh, we, the thing we do at the end of every episode is we, we kind of have some connective tissue from episode to episode. We have our guest from the last episode pose a question to our guest for the current episode, not knowing who they were. Um, and... As it, as it so happens, uh, journalist and author Michael Pope, who also, I believe, gave tours for, for your tour company for a little while there. He was our last guest. Um, and naturally, his, his question has a lot to do with uh, journalism and the media. His question to you is, uh, what is your media diet? Where do you get your news from? Do you read newspapers, um, read only online stuff? Do you listen to podcasts? What, what, kind, of, what kind of media diet do you have? I listen to whatever Michael Pope says. <laughs> <laughs> Wise words. Uh, what What is a question that you have for our next guest, not knowing who they are? Well, since you asked me if I believe in ghosts, I have to ask the same question. Do you believe in ghosts? Do you find that most of the people on your tour actually do believe? Or are they just in it for a good story? I think they're in it for a good story. I think it divides into thirds. Some believe, some okay. are skeptical, and some don't believe at all. Yeah, interesting. Well, uh, I think we're all probably a little bit of a believer after your stories. Thank you again, Wellington. Thanks for popping on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I really enjoyed it. And um, we'd be glad to have you come join us again, Uh, bring friends and family. We plan on being here through Thanksgiving. We may take a little bit of break in December and then uh, hopefully have enough business we can come back between the holidays of Christmas and New Year's. Yeah, definitely. Here's hoping. Uh, 
Thank you again, Wellington, and, and take it easy, Alexandria. Thank you.